on today's episode of Unlocking the Club, I am thrilled to be in conversation with the Honorable Monica F. Wiley. Wiley was appointed to the San Francisco Superior Court bench on September 1st, 2009 by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and is the second African-American female judge appointed to the San Francisco bench. During her tenure with the San Francisco Superior Court, Judge Wiley has presided in the civil, criminal, family, delinquency, and dependency departments in both trial and calendar courtrooms. Judge Wiley is a member of the 2021 to 2023 Judicial College Steering Committee, a member of the faculty for the California Center for Judicial Education for new judges orientation, and a faculty member for the B.E. Whitkin Judicial College, and is an adjunct professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. Judge Wiley currently serves as a task force member on statewide committees focused on civility and the elimination of bias in the legal profession and on the advisory committee of Central Legal De La Raza's Youth Law Academy. Judge Wiley earned her J.D. Cumulade from Howard University School of Law. She received her bachelor's degree in political economies of industrial societies from the University of California at Berkeley and was a four-year letter winner as a member of the Cal women's basketball team. Thanks for tuning in as we unlock the club with our guest, the Honorable Monica F. Wiley. Welcome to the Unlocking the Club podcast, where we host honest and direct conversations about journeys of access, personal truth, and reclaiming space. We share our truth so that you can find the key to own your truth, honor your journey, and reclaim your space. Grab your keys, your wallet, your phone, and invite your friends to meet you at the club. Here's your host, Angela Taylor. Hey, folks. I'm Angela Taylor, your host for Unlocking the Club. And today, we're going to unlock the club by demystifying the justice system from the lens of a judge uh, who happens to be a Black female who's been in the justice system from a few different capacities for several years, and we'll get some insight from her. But before that, I actually want to talk a little bit about my participation, if you will, in the justice system. I've had some really interesting interactions in the justice system that really have been etched in my mind um, as I look at unlocking the club. It's a really intimidating process, a really intimidating system. And I got to know it pretty early when I was a college sophomore. Uh, in a, in, but I can look back now at something that was kind of funny, but in the moment it wasn't so much so. So when I was at Stanford, uh, we had some scooters. And I would be riding the scooters around campus with some of my teammates from time to time. And there were some areas that were off limits to scooters, but it was easier to get from point A to point B with a straight line versus going all the way around campus. So we decided sometimes to cut through campus. Well, one particular time, uh, there was an officer who saw me cutting through campus, pulled me over and gave me a ticket. When I had that ticket, I had to show up in court about a month and a half later. And I had never been ordered to court before. I didn't know what to do. Um, had gotten some advice from one of my assistant coaches on the women's basketball team about what to do, what to say. You know, I was guilty as charged. I was literally riding through the middle of campus. There was no way that I was going to get out of this. And as I'm standing before the judge and he calls me, he looks at me for a second and he says, I need you to approach the bench. And in that moment, my heart was sinking. I didn't know what was going to happen. I'm embarrassed to a certain extent, right? I, I'm not a high profile student athlete, but I was a student athlete representing the Stanford women's basketball team at the time. And as I approached the bench, I was just worried that again, like, right, he was going to put me in handcuffs, send me to jail. I didn't know what was going to happen. And he looks at me and he says, I think you were my daughter's coach at basketball camp last summer. Look, you're not supposed to be doing this. Like, I'm going to let you off the hook this time, but make sure you don't do it again. Again, in that moment, recognizing that who you know really matters was my first taste of the justice system, right? A system that, again, is really intimidating. My second taste was when I was in New York City and I was called for jury duty. And I was, I was sitting in the jury waiting area, waiting to get called. I was looking around at everybody else from New York City that was to my left and the right in the room. And I recognize first and foremost, like if I was a teacher or a parent and my kid was in eighth or ninth grade, I would actually have them join me in the jury box. Because if you see who a jury of your peers really is, 
you may choose to make some different choices in those moments where you can get, find yourself in trouble. So again, it's one of those systems and those structures that we all, since the beginning of time, have heard about. But unless you've had an encounter in the justice system, it's this mythological thing. Uh, and I think what we've seen over the last couple of years, it could be a really intimidating space, particularly for those of us um, who are in the historically excluded or marginalized identities, because oftentimes you don't have somebody on the bench as a judge who looks like you, who may understand your lived experience, um, who may give you the benefit of the doubt in certain cases. And so that's why we really want to have this conversation excited about today's discussion with our special guest, the Honorable Monica F. Wiley, who I want to know not just the work that she does, but who she is inside of the journey that she's had to take to getting to the place that she is now, um, where she's actually in a judge in San Francisco. Monica, hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm great, and thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited. Are you excited to be here? Well, you know, this is a rare occasion where we have like Stanford Cardinal and Cal like right in the same space and on the same team. So, so it's an honor to be in the space with the Cal Bear today. Thank you. Awesome. Well, you know, as we just heard your amazing bio, you, you've obviously had uh, an amazing career in the legal system. I'm curious, not just the work that you've done over the years, but who you've been inside of that legal system as a black woman navigating this space, which seems to me from the outside looking in as predominantly white male, right? Um, and a space that is a club that we aren't always welcome into. What has your experience been like and what is important to you in the role and capacity that you have? Well, just kind of by way of context, um, I was appointed by Arnold Schwarzenegger in 19, I'm sorry, 2009, September 1st, 2009. And I was the second African-American female appointed uh, to the bench in San Francisco. So in the 160, plus year history of the San Francisco Superior Court bench, we'd only had two African-American women actually appointed to the bench. Uh, we now, uh, in 2022, have a third. So the first actually was elevated to the Court of Appeal. So we really only have, again, two in San Francisco. So when you say that there is kind of an exclusive club uh, in terms of diversity in the judiciary, um, I think that that really is a kind of a, in San Francisco a microcosm really of nationally kind of what the trends are. Um, when I became a judge uh, in, on, you know, in 2009, uh, there, were, there was no one, only one person who really looked like me. Um, she became my mentor judge. Uh, she's been someone who I have looked you know, up to and modeled my career after. Uh, but walking into any room and, and you know, how is this different from college or law school or you know any any other real you know professional walk where you walk into a room and you might be the only African American, you might be the only African American woman. Um, and you've kind of layered all of that with, you know, I was appointed at 39. So I'm the youngest member of my court. I'm the second African American female and I'm only uh, again someone who has it's very rarefied air uh, that I was a part of initially. Which is just mind blowing considering like, right, you're operating in San Francisco and California and what we all think of, of the progressive state where there's a lot of diversity. We think about the landscape across the country and what the numbers must look like. Like I'm here in Idaho, like right in, in, in any other place. And for you, what was the sense that you had? Like I talk about this quite a bit with our guests. Society has this way of pigeonholing black women into the roles that we can and should have and those that are off limits to us. What gave you the audacity to think that this was a path that you could take or wanted to even endeavor to take? Uh, Dr. Shirley Wiley. Um, so my mom was a career educator. She spent over 35 years in education and she had two daughters. And she told us when we were, my sister's two years older than I am. She told us when we were about, I think 10 and 12, one of you is going to be a doctor and one of you is going to be a lawyer. And I don't care who's who or what's what. So I was terrible in math. And so I quickly signed up for the, you know, the lawyer card. Uh, my sister signed up for the doctor card. So she's a doctor. She practices in Fresno. You know, I was an attorney. It never was, you know, are you, are you going to finish high school? Are you going to finish college? It's what college are you going to? 
And then after that, it's what graduate school are you going to? What you know, professional degree are you going to uh, obtain? And so when you say the audacity, I, I I had no choice. I you know, my mother was there pushing, pulling, uh, you know, all the way, all all the way along my career. And so you know, I was I was fortunate. I, I just listened to her and. When she told me, you know, to work harder, I worked harder. Yeah. So we need a, a Shirley Wiley in all of our lives, like, right? Someone who speak it into existence and make it happen, right? She said, you know, you're going to be either a doctor or a lawyer. And she has a daughter that's a, a doctor and a daughter that's a lawyer. That's pretty amazing. And can only imagine how amazing um, she was to, to have been a doctor, like, right, um, in her generation. Well, she she got her educational doctorate when my sister and I were in our late teens. And, you know, thinking about that now, you know, having two daughters, a husband and going back to school because she had to go, you know, back to school to to pick up um, a lot of credits so that she could get her educational doctorate. Um, it took a lot of perseverance. And we have a there's a picture that my sister and I have on the day of her graduation when she received her doctorate. And it says we want to be doctors just like my mom. And so I, I think, you know, when you, when you have that kind of a role model, um, as I said, you really don't have a choice. You, you know, you're going to hopefully achieve very good things in life. You remind me um, a few weeks ago, I was I had the pleasure of going to the National Museum of African American History in D.C. And um, if you haven't been, it's incredible. And don't just spend a day. Right, you're probably going to need to be there several days just to take in all the information, some of it overwhelming, some of it. Um, inspiring and motivating. And one of the things and threads that really resonated with me was all these women, like, right, who were, were juggling so many different things, were the caretaker um, for their family, whether it was their, their spouses or their children or whoever else, right, was, was in their family, um, was, was working a full-time job and having to try to do things to, to live into what their dreams and their vision was. And I think that that is what I'm hearing from you um, and what your mother implanted in you all and that you were able to witness firsthand as she was navigating her own journey um, to, to getting a doctorate. I'm curious, is that a burden that right black women that you feel that we have, that we have to be exceptional because others are watching? <laughs> I, I, I think it goes without saying, I think that um, you know, when we, as African-American women, um, we have such an incredible legacy uh, that when, when you talk about, you know, what others achieved earlier, you know, before the civil rights movement uh, in the late 19th century, all of that, you know, layered with what they had to face. You know, they had to face Jim Crow law. They had to face, you know, uh, segregation they had to find the pockets of you know exceptionalism where they could and then build upon it uh, you know what is the what is the biggest concern i have today you know i hope i don't drive my tesla too far that i you know i'm not able to charge before i get home it's incredible what they achieved it's incredible i think how they were able to model and role model uh, success for their children and you know hopefully that's the legacy that that, that continues to you know, to perpetrate and continues to uh, happen in, in you know, the African-American community because, you know, we come from a really strong line of people. And when I went to the African-American Museum, one of the things that I kept thinking as I was going um, through the exhibits was, it's amazing we've achieved everything that we've achieved with all of the oppression, with everything that we had to deal with and combat, and combat you know, throughout history. Look at, look at what we've done. Uh, can we and should we have even greater achievements? Of course, but where we are now, I think, is is a certainly a, just a an absolute credit to to the people that whose legacies and whose shoulders that we've stood on. Which is a really important perspective to to have, because the system would have you thinking that you aren't capable, right? The system wants you to get frustrated and overwhelmed and to stop. Right. The system wanted you not to hear your mother right, put this dream out there. And the first obstacle that you met for, for Monica to stop and say, you know what, maybe maybe this isn't what I'm capable of doing. And yet and still, like, right. Imposter syndrome, right? Yes. We all have imposter syndrome. Yes. And, you know, I, I've had imposter syndrome throughout you know, points of my career. And I've always said this. I heard this a long time ago and it just resonates with me. 
you know, grant me the confidence of a mediocre white man. Because <laughs> if I had the confidence of a mediocre white man, I'd be the queen of England. In a moment, yes. It, you know, so that, that, everyone has that and we go through those periods of time. And I think that that's when you're talking about networking and seeing people who, who look like you, who've achieved certain things and making sure that you have that representation, those role models, that mentorship because that's the time where you can go to your mentor and you can say, you know, I'm not sure I can get this done. I'm not sure I can do this. And that person is gonna pull you up. And that person is gonna say, of course you can. I did it, you can do it. How can I help you? You know, what can we do um, to make sure that you're not going to self-defeat um, because of imposter syndrome? And so that's why networking mentorship is so, so important um, you know, for our community. It is, and, and speaking of, right, the confidence of a mediocre white man, um, when you said that, it took me back to the recent confirmation hearings for Judge Kentonji Brown Jackson, who I know for me, I watched wall-to-wall -wall coverage two o'clock in the morning if I couldn't see it during the course of the day or later. And it was both inspiring and overwhelming. I was proud and pissed off at the same time, like, right? And in those hearings, as I heard medi mediocre folks across the base questioning her capability of being on the Supreme Court. And I get curious, I know how I felt as someone, a lay person who hasn't done all the things that you've done in the justice system. I wonder from your perspective, as someone who has earned her place in the court, what it felt like to watch that transpire. I, I was able to watch a lot of the hearings and one, I give her all of the credit in the world. I would have been across the table, you know, in somebody's face, uh, probably about 30 seconds into that. Um, you know, she kept her composure and I, I think that everything that she had experienced before in life had brought her to that moment. Uh, obviously, President Biden made a fantastic choice. Uh, and it reminded me, one of a good friend of mine was very recently uh, confirmed uh, also to the federal court bench. And she told me about an, an opportunity that she had to do some judicial training. And so she went to the judicial training and, you know, there was another judge from Kentucky. And so he asked her, as they started their conversation, uh, what law school did you go to? Oh, no. And a dreaded question. A dreaded question. And she said why does it matter? Because to her, we're both sitting in this room, we're both recently appointed Article 3, Section 2 judges, which is a, a judicial appointment for life. Hmm. Does it matter that I went to Yale? Where did you go? Exactly. And so I, I think that, you know, when I watched the hearings, um, you know, you had a lot of people who didn't have nearly the credentials that she had. And in fact, if you look very objectively at her credentials, at her work experience, um, she is the most qualified Supreme Court justice that we have, having had a tremendous amount of trial experience, which none of the other justices have had in the past, in the recent past. So I, I think that, you know, we get into this, you know, she was the, the first African-American on the United States Supreme Court. She's the most qualified Supreme Court justice that we've had in a long time. And so I, I give her a, a tremendous amount of credit. I think that, you know, obviously her family is just extremely proud of her. Her friends are extremely proud of her. Anyone who's known her uh, is extremely proud. And I think a lot, a lot of people will say, I knew, you know, I, I knew she was going to be destined for great things. And, I, and I'm sure that's true because I think that the way she handled those hearings indicated really the strength of character that she has. No, that is so true. And and the truth of the matter is the other candidates that were being vetted for the nomination were also very qualified, right? Double IVs, whatever the credentials that you were looking for. And yet and still the question was, are we sacrificing quality to fit this, this idealistic viewpoint that the Democrats have, which is really, I think, what we hear quite often, whether it's in the corporate space, and I'm sure in the in the courtroom, is did you earn your opportunity? Have you ever had that sense, whether someone said it to you, or you felt that people are kind of looking to see, like, 
did the Honorable Monica F. Wiley earn her seat on the bench? Well, you know, I, I was 39 when I was when I was appointed, and so I, I, I came in. I was appointed the same day as a, a group of other. I was there were five of us appointed the same day, four women. I was the only woman. Um, I was the youngest, uh, and so I think that there immediately was a why her, and so with that comes. Well, obviously, you know, there's, they're, they're pushing diversity. It's a diverse selection. And so that's why she's there. Forget the fact that I had more jury trial experience than, you know, the other four that were not, you know, that were uh, appointed that day. Forget the fact that, you know, I, my, the, the richness of, of both, you know, federal and court state practice that I had, you know, let's, let's put all of that aside. Um, so, yes, you come into it with, I have a chip on my shoulder. And, and as, as a competitive athlete, you know, I'm going to outwork you. I'm going to outprepare you. I'm, I, you know, if I get a chance, I'm going to stomp you into the ground. So with that, I think comes, you know, comes, you can, you can transfer that uh, into, you know, being the best judge that I could be uh, when I first started. You know, there was, you know, if, if there was a duty judge, if someone needed a, you know, 24 hour, not an hour, I'm on that phone, you know, talking to police officers, my hand was up to do it. If there was, hey, we need someone to take this trial, my hand was up to do it. Um, and I just, you know, I think hopefully, you know, by the end of my first year, certainly I had proven, you know, that I was going to be an asset. I, you know, I might only be 39 years old, but I was going to be an asset um, to this organization. And so I think that you, you have to prove yourself out of that, right? You have to prove yourself again and again every day, every minute of every day, that you are where you belong, you've earned your spot, and you're gonna make the most of your opportunity. I think one of the reasons why having participated in athletics is of tremendous benefit, um, it, it, wherever your career takes you, is because of what you just pointed out, of the capacity and the understanding to be in a space where there's that positive self-talk that happens. Like that this is what I am capable of doing. And even in those moments or instances where you don't succeed or you make a mistake, right, you know you can recover and it doesn't devastate you. Like what has being an athlete embedded in you that has had you be successful um, as a judge and in the legal system? I think it's this, you know, the same skill set that you're developing as an athlete. Time management, preparation, attention to detail, um, stamina, perseverance, uh, being a, really just being able to focus. You know, I have a task, I have a job, and I'm going to focus on it. Um, and I'm going to compare myself, not necessarily to my competition, but to what I know my personal ability is. And I think that in doing that, you're really, really able, particularly in you know, an adversarial process like litigation, I think you're able to, I, I'm not going to play up to my competition or down to my competition. I'm going to play the game that I know how to play. And if you work hard enough, you train, you know, you train long enough, you train hard enough, then your best is, is generally going to be better than others. So I think that's kind of all of those skills, all of that, that kind of mindset uh, that I developed over the years. I think I brought that certainly into being a litigator uh, because that's, by nature, a very adversarial process. So then when you become a judge, you don't have that kind of adversarial process mindset. Instead, you're protecting the process. Mm -hmm. You are the face of the justice system. You know, some people who come to your courtroom, you're the only person, only judge, judicial officer that they're going to be able to interact with. Sometimes in their entire, in their entire lives, they may just set foot in one courtroom. So if that's what's going to happen, then you want to make sure that you're fair, that you're neutral, that you've listened, that you've ruled impartially and objectively, and that they understand even if you rule against them, even if I, I don't necessarily see the facts the way that you see the facts, and I don't apply the law the way you think that I should apply the law, they still feel that they have, have some part of the process that they feel that they have been able to have their day in court and that the process was fair because the judge was fair. And so I think those are kind of my goals um, each and every day. And uh, I think that that helps tremendously in terms of, we, we, I, I like to think of it as the consumer's experience with the court system. Yeah. 
Well, you, you spoke about um, Governor Schwarzenegger nominated you for the court uh, when you were 39. So you probably roughly had about 12 to 15 years as a litigator, I imagine, in between coming out of law school. And I get curious of what young Monica was like as you were trying to navigate your way up the, the ladder. And, and I say this because I mentioned in the opening um, the experience I had in the New York City um, jury system. And the case that I did receive, it was a, a drug case and um, the defendant couldn't afford his own representation, right? So it was a court appointed attorney. And I remember people that were on the jury with me who didn't look like either the defendant or the court appointed attorney were making a decision based on things that had nothing to do with the evidence, right? And so the, the attorney showed up late one day in court her hair was falling out of her ponytail. She was a black woman. And they were like, he can't even afford uh, an attorney that is going to get here on time and represent him. He has to be guilty. Like, and I'm like, wait a minute. Like, that has nothing to do with the case at hand or the evidence that we're hearing. Did you experience how you showed up in the courtroom impacting, right, outcomes? Well, I think for me, I think in terms of how I wanted to present myself, I wanted to be, you know, I always wanted to be professional. And in, in fact, in a, in a little bit of genderism, I never wore pants. When I was in, you know, for the 12 years that I was a litigator, I did not wear pants to court one day. Wow. So it was a skirt suit, right? That you saw in the 90s and 2000s, yeah? It was a skirt suit yeah. and a very muted colored skirt suit. Um, but, you know, the, there, there's so much that goes into it because, you know, as the attorney, you realize they're, look, you know, the jury is going to look at you, that you are, you're there advocating on behalf of your client you are attempting to be as persuasive as you can. And I think that, you know, that, that's, that's a heavy burden. That's, and, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why I shied away from, from criminal litigation when I was younger, because, I, you know, that type of, of, of pressure. And, and you have someone's liberty in your hands. And I, I, as a young attorney, I did not want to do that. I wanted to do, you know, civil litigation. If I lost someone's money, it was money and it could be replaced. Um, versus someone's personal liberty and knowing as an African-American woman that the system wasn't fair. You know, you can try a, a criminal trial 10 different times to 10 different juries and you're going to have different, probably a number of different results. And when it comes to sentencing, if you have 10 different judges, you may have 10 different sentences. So the arbitrariness of the process um, to me I had some difficulty with when I was a young attorney. And, and so I think that, you know, your experience that you spoke of, of the criminal justice system on that scooter, um, I, I, that knowing, knowing someone, knowing um, what the process is, knowing that, you know, pretrial diversion, it's a minor offense. If you, you know, if your attorney knows the DA and they've had, you know, they have a good working relationship, the PD goes to the DA and you know your first appearance, you may get diversion right away. You might get a, a felony reduced to a misdemeanor. That misdemeanor can then you know be expunged after a period of time. So knowing that process, I think is important. Knowing and, and just having information, and and that's you know what I think. There are a lot of things wrong, obviously, with the criminal justice system. Um, you know, there's systemic racism, there's implicit bias, there's unconscious bias, all of that. But just having information to be able to make informed and intelligent decisions about the process and what you should do, you know, that's, that's what's powerful. That's where, you know, a lot of people, I think, you know, sometimes they, they, they think, well, I need that private attorney. I need that $750 an hour attorney. There are some tr exceptional public defenders that that private $750 an hour attorney, they don't go to court. A public defender is in court every single day. They know the DA, they know the judge, they know the police officers, they know all the players. So I get in trouble. I probably can't, unfortunately, I won't qualify for a public defender, but I would rather go to a public defender because they know what they're doing versus someone who doesn't do criminal law and, and doesn't step in court every single day. Monica, I get curious as you're talking about the criminal justice system of the parallels, if any, between like the corporate space and the criminal justice system. And you spoke earlier about the lessons that you learned from, from your mother, right? Is put your head down, work hard, get good grades, and you know, the rest, right? Continue that throughout your career. 
And I think that's what many of us hear, like right from our black parents is, look, don't let them see you sweat, put your head down, work as hard as you can, get good grades, get an education, and then get a good job. And what we don't hear is about the social capital that is needed, right? Of the relationships that are needed to, after you get to a certain level inside of any system, what pulls you through is relationships and trust that is built um, with those influencers and decision makers inside of organizations. And I didn't know that until well into my career. Is that similar in the, the club that you are now navigating? Is there another club? It feels like from the outside looking in that, you know, the Honorable Monica F. Wiley, you are in the club. Is there another level to the club in the in the criminal justice system? There's all there are always levels, right? There are always levels to clubs. And you know, the real decision makers, people think judges have a lot of power. We don't have a all of the power in the criminal justice system. That stems from the charging documents and the charging officials, and that's the district attorney. Who your district attorney is, if you wanna talk about you know, criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, bail reform, you're looking at who the district attorney is because that's the person who can make all of those things happen. You know, The judges, we are just reacting to what the charges are, what the counts are in the indictment, or in the complaint in front of us. And once a jury, if a jury convicts, what does the sentencing guidelines then say? You know, what's the low, mid, and high term? We have some discretion with respect to that, but if you're never charged with that, you know, petty theft uh, over, you know, $950, then we don't, we don't have an opportunity to then deal with that case. So that, that, that's the club within the club is really, I think, the, the district attorney's office, who's in charge of the district attorney's office, and how they are looking at, at, at criminal law and criminal justice reform. Which is a really important, important passcode, right? Oftentimes, when we're looking at our election cycles, we look at the top of the ballot and we wait till the presidential elections to get involved. But when we look at our local politics, where the district attorneys, the secretary of state, and all of these different roles that do impact outcomes, when they are being elected and where we need more representation, we aren't as um, consistent of participants in those conversations. And I think that that is another place that we can unlock the club is what we're exactly where you're pointing us to is understanding all of the dynamics inside of the system. I think local politics are, are, are so undervalued um, and, and not just, you know, the DA's race or, you know, if who's going to be the public defender, but who's going to be on your school board? You know, who is going to be making the decisions for your children in terms of, you know, sometimes curriculum, sometimes, you know, different things that that involve their day to day experience in the educational system. Those are just to me just as important elections as, you know, who's going to be the DA, who's going to be your, your junior senator from the state of California, who's going to be your governor, um, because that's really where I think a lot of impact starts at the very, very local level, because that's our day to day. That's, you know, how we experience life in our communities uh, are on, the, on that very, very local level. So yes, pay attention, be informed um, in terms of your local politics as well. Uh, such a great point. I get curious too, uh, you know, you've been really intentional about your journey, right? And really diligent throughout the process. Was there a time where you thought this is not for me where there was, right, you thought you had the door open and, right, it was blocked, there was a gatekeeper that wasn't letting you in. If so, like, how did you overcome that? So, I, you know, I, I can't remember a time other than, so when I, when I was first applying for, for law schools, um, my sister, who you know, two years older, she's the doctor, um, she told me, you played a sport in college, you had a 3-5 at Cal, you can go anywhere. So I applied to Stanford, Harvard, Yale, uh, Berkeley, and Georgetown. I got waitlisted at Georgetown. Everyone else said no, including Stanford, but all for the better. <laughs> so another story, right? <laughs> another story. Um, but so there I was, you know, with with a specific goal in mind, right? I I wanted to go to law school, and I had been essentially you know, my arm had been twisted by my mother, you're going to law school. So when I was rejected from the different, from the various law schools, I said, ah, you know, maybe I wait a year. Maybe I retake the LSAT. Maybe I wait a year, you know, work for a year, 
recalibrate a bit. And my mom, knowing my personality, said, no, no, I will, we will go to the latest, and, and Howard, the latest deadline in the entire continental U.S. of A. Uh, in, in 1995 for the law school admissions. Um, and we applied and um, uh, I got in. And uh, what was interesting uh, about that particular journey was that um, it, in retrospect, that was the, Howard was the best school for me. I, I may have gotten lost you know, in a, in a school with more people that had less diver a lot less diversity. Um, and I felt going, you know, away from home for the first time, going to Washington, D.C., um, being part of that community that was extremely nurturing uh, was for my personality, you know, and I was fairly, I was a 22-year-old right out of college. I didn't, you know, it, that was perfect for me. That, that was perfect for me. I, you know, I, I found another identity, if you will, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And so, I, I now embrace the everything works out for a reason because of, of course, you know, back in, you know, February, March of the year that I graduated, I was devastated that I hadn't gotten into the schools, the top five schools that I wanted to get into. I, I now believe in the universe. I now believe everything really does work out the way it's supposed to work out. And so I had a, I had a fantastic three years at Howard. Um, it was, uh, I, you know, friendships and relationships that I still have to this day. You know, the former mayor of Atlanta was in my class, uh, Kasim Reed. I've got a couple other, you know, people that have gone on to do some incredible things uh, from that class. And um, I think that it was well worthwhile, um, you know, for me to have that experience because that not getting into the schools that I wanted to get into was the really the first, I think the first time I, I lost something. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been top top 5% of my class. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't gotten, you know, the most valuable player or, or whatever it was. And that was, it took a, a lot of, for me, um, internal self-reflection to kind of, you know, pick myself up and say, okay, this is still, we can still make this happen, right? We can still go to law school. We can still, you know, do well. We can still graduate with honors. We can still go back to California and, and do what we want to do. Well, and there's an important lesson there in what you say, because so often, like, right, we we're faced with an obstacle. We don't get what we want and we stop and we think that, OK, well, it's not meant to be right. It's not ordained and we may choose another path. Instead, you've leaned in right? completely. You still knew what your vision was going to be. It may take you may get a different path to that vision, but you were able to lean in. But it feels like, Monica, like. That you have people in your life that can provide that great context. And I think often what happens for Black women, as you are climbing the ladder and you become one of the very few people at that stage in your evolution, you don't have a lot of people in your, your life, your family, who have similar lived experiences that you can bounce things off of and give you that suggestion. And that's why I say you find it, right? That's why I say you, you seek out your mentor. You know, your mentor doesn't have to like, one, and, and, I, and I strongly believe this, your mentor does not have to look like you. Yes. They do not have to be a black female. They can be, in fact, when I, when I look back, I had um, at, at a law firm that I worked at, uh, one of the most impactful uh, partners that, that I worked with that summer looked nothing like me. He was a 72-year-old white man, and yet he was so invested in me and my success, and that's all you want. Yeah. Whatever that package, whatever that mentor package looks like, you want that person to be as invested in your success as you are. And that that can be any package. I don't care who it is. I don't care what it looks like. Yes. I want that person to care about me and my success. And so, you know, looking for those people and, and, and sometimes you, you can't wait for that person to kind of notice you and, 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 and you know, say, hey, you know, let's go get dinner let's go get lunch. You need to be proactive. You need to say to that person, you know, I, I would love to sit down with you, coffee, lunch, you know, even a phone call and, and talk about you and your journey and talk about you know, me, where I am and what things I maybe need to do. Because I don't have that in my family. I don't have someone I know that can provide me that, that crucial um, information or that crucial advice. And so you've got to find it. 
really important perspective. Right? That's the social capital. And it's not always going to work in the opposite direction where somebody sees you in the hallway and is saying, hey, that's somebody I want to get to know. You may have to be proactive in finding that person yourself. We had, a, when I was at the WNBA League office, we had an event called Inspiring Women Luncheon. And one of our first speakers was Madeline Albright, um, who I know passed away recently. Uh, and uh, she was taking questions from the audience. And somebody asked, like, who was one of your, you know, um, most favorite female mentors? And she was like, and she had like a witty sense of humor. And she's like, I got to tell you the truth. Like women were my nemesis quite often. We got in each other's way because there's a sense of it's either you or me. Right. So it was a, it was a zero sum game. And some of my strongest mentors and advocates were white men. And so when you found that 72 year old colleague who became the person that was connecting with you, was sponsoring you probably in different circumstances, um, it was a really brilliant way to build that bridge and to allow him to get to know who you were by proactively reaching out to him. I think it's really important. Yeah. And as I said, you can't you can't one, you can't wait. Don't wait. You know, you need to be proactive, but two, again, and I, and I can't emphasize this enough because we want to, you know, we walk into a room, you, you, you see that other person that looks like you, you do the head nod, and that person may not head nod you back. And it's like, <laughs> it's like wait, you know, come on, brother, what, what's up? Yeah. And, you know, you need to find the people, again, the people are going to be in your corner. They may not look like you, but that's, that, that's who you got. You know, you, 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 you sometimes, as they say, you can't pick your family. And, and some people will be your family and you need to be open to that. Well, Monica, what's next for you? Like, right, as you are here in this amazing position, like what is something that you wanna create for yourself? You know, I, I, I often wonder, because um, I'm extremely happy what I'm doing. You know, I, I right now I um, am supervising in our family department and I do a little bit of everything. I do family, I do juvenile justice, uh, I do dependency, I get to teach statewide. Um, I, I have a great, I have a great autonomy. You know, I, I've gotten to the point where I'm going to get my, everybody knows I'm going to get my job done. I'll, I'll, I'll do it well. And I just have a lot of autonomy. Um, and so what's next? Um, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I'd like to be the presiding judge in San Francisco. Um, that's uh, something that's voted on by your peers. Um, so there are 52 of us. I need 51 votes. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, not 51 votes, but the majority. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I, I would like to do that. Um, I, you know, I, I've always said no, never to the court of appeal. I'm kind of, you know, rethinking that a little bit. Maybe, maybe I'll uh, apply for elevation. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I'm still fairly young. Um, at uh, 52, and so uh, there are a lot of things that, that, that I think I still want to do. In fact, really, maybe one day even going back to litigation, because um, it's hard sometimes to watch uh, in court. In my first year, I had a jury trial assignment, and I had to train myself out of every time I would hear an objection, a, a question that should be objected to, I'd have to train myself out, out of looking you know, to the other side, like, you're going to object to that? Because that's speculation. That calls for speculation. Yeah. So I would have to train myself not to do that. I love litigation. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I've loved basketball in my life as a sport, but I think I loved litigation more. And so I, I could see myself eventually going back and doing some kind of litigation. Interesting. It's like um, when chefs, right, when chefs become executive chefs, they actually are further away from the thing that they're passionate about, and that's actually cooking, right? They're now ordering linens and ordering the inventory and, and all those different things, and they're not actually in the kitchen cooking. So the further up the ladder you get, the further from the thing that enticed you into this profession um, sometimes occurs. I'm, I'm curious, uh, Monica, for you, you know, when we look at what you've accomplished and the intensity of the job that you have, the responsibility. I, I get curious about wellness in the workplace. Like, how do you take care of self in this really stressful atmosphere? At least from the outside looking in, it feels like it must be stressful. So my, my first, and I, I've had two stints now in family law, and I, I really found my passion in family law. My background was civil litigation, but I think I found passion as a judge in my family law assignments. And the first go around here, I would take everything home. I would agonize over every single decision. 
Uh, I would um, bring families back for review hearings. I had one, one couple that was a very, very young couple, five kids, young African-American couple. We had a daily, I'm not sorry, daily, a weekly, <laughs> a weekly session with them. They would come in three o'clock on Thursdays, every Thursday, three o'clock. And literally it was just a, how you doing? How'd you do this week? Um, and in my family law assignment, I find that you have to be a little bit of a social worker, a little bit of a therapist, a little bit of a judge, right? Because ultimately I'm gonna make a decision and issue an order. And the expectation is that you comply with that order. But there's so many different facets to what you're doing. And um, so I, I really found a passion uh, in, in family law. And so um, I went to criminal court after my first stint. And there it was so different. It was, you know, adults making adult decisions and sometimes there are consequences. And sometimes you had to go to state prison for a period of time. And, and the, just the dispassionate way in which that whole process happens. You know, it's like almost like a well choreographed, or sometimes not a well choreographed uh, dance between the DA's office, the PD's office, and the judges. Um, I, it was interesting, I came back to family and I was able to pull back. And it was almost like a light bulb because I, I realized that I didn't make the facts, I'm trying to, to, to help the parties, help the family, um, and so I don't need to take it home every night. I don't need to agonize over every decision. I need to make a decision and move on. And so that really helped. I, I think I added years to my life, literally, um, by having that different experience. And so now I, 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 was, I was telling you about a bike trip that I have planned for next year. It um, is a cross-country bike trip. Um, I used to play a lot of sports uh, after college. Uh, I still played rec recreationally. I played basketball. I got into some flag football, which was awesome. Um, I like the high impact stuff, you know, uh, ultimate Frisbee. Right. Uh, and then I had a hip replacement when I was 44 <laughs> because. Because you were doing had, all of that. <laughs> I was doing all that and I had no cartilage. And so that kind of slowed me down a bit. But. Um, the cycling that, that's new is fairly new. The cycling is kind of, I think, a little tiny bit of a substitute for that. Um, so I, I did a 30 mile ride yesterday and I'm like not waiting for red light. I know this is bad, but <laughs> it's, it's sometimes, it somehow makes it even more exciting if you just don't wait for the red lights and you try to go around the cars. Um, but I think that, um, you know, you have to find, obviously, in, in whatever you're doing, you have to find that outlet. You have to find that way to, to wind down. I don't drink, uh, which a lot of people, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, have an evening cocktail or, or something. So I don't drink. Um, I don't have any other vices, so to speak. So you know, it has to be it has to be some kind of an athletic outlet for me. Well, and I sense that the, there's no in between, right? It's either you're not doing it or you're going to do it exceptionally well and do. Some, I mean, a cross country bike trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is it? Uh, 52 days on a bike. Yes, that does sound crazy. The more I say it, the more crazier it sounds, although I put my deposit down. So, so you're locked in at this point. And it's out in the university. Unlocking the club community. We will be here to support you along the way. We'll be cheering you on. You'll have to you know, check in with us when you start that. So when are you planning to do this? So this is March 2023. Okay. Um, it's going to start, uh, I want to say March 9th. Uh, and it'll be um, 52 straight days and then I'm, I'm only going to be gone you know like 38 days from work or something like that um so it'll be it'll be the longest definitely the longest you know time off the bench that i have taken um and it, i i'm really looking forward to it i'm a little scared i will i will be you know quite honest um but it's a supported trip so i've already told the organizer i'll be in the van more than you will i feel <laughs> feel like I should be paid for driving the van. Um, but it's, yeah, it's gonna, it's, it's, it's pretty, you know, we have off days and, and spa days. And so it, I should, you know, knock on wood. Yeah, well, I'm not sure what your experience was like in COVID the last two years, right? And the, the criminal justice system, like if you were in the courtroom, if you're interacting with people or not, but it feels like that is the remedy for what has happened over the last two years is to be able to get on a bike and see this country. It's a beautiful country. Hopefully you'll head through Idaho. 
right? Let me know if you head this way through Idaho. But um, I, I think it's it's fantastic. Like you, as soon as you said it, you had me thinking, wait a minute, what's something like that? To find that competitive edge, uh, an excuse and a reason to actually work out and, and be in great shape again. Uh, Easy on the joints. And you look really good in those bike clothes. Is that, is that what it is? Okay, so glad you check, 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 all of those different things. Well, I mean, That's what it is. Hopefully, whoever is in the van knows how to fix the tires. They do. Because I think that's the biggest issue. I actually know how to fix a tire now. They, <laughs> I, I took a class. You know, it's it, it's something when when you think about like all of the different things really that you can do. Um, as I said, that's like longevity. When you're talking about you know golfing, I never got into golfing, um, but something that you can do forever. You know, until you're 80 years old, you can golf. And so, you know, cycling is kind of one of those things. Um, so I, I think, I, and, and, and it sounds, I, I kind of started to pick it up a little earlier this year, but I think I really wanted to pick it up during COVID. But you couldn't find a bike in COVID because everybody yeah, had a bike in COVID. Yeah. And so I think I, I delayed it a couple of years, but um, I'm, yeah, I'm really looking forward to embracing it. That's great. Monica, you are someone as a peer in your peer group that I admire uh, and inspired by all the things that you're doing. Uh, and undoubtedly there's, you know, a 10, 11 year old girl that somehow comes across your photo that says the Honorable Monica F. Wiley. And she asks her parents, like, what does that mean? And what is she doing? And now all of a sudden she wants to pursue a similar career what would you tell that 10 or 11 year old girl or the 24 year old law school graduate about the journey that's ahead? Um, everybody has obstacles. You might fail uh, your first try, um, but there is a law school for everyone in this country. If you want to go to school, uh, you will graduate. You will pass a bar wherever you are. If you remember to stay prepared, work as hard as you can and just really understand that there are people and allies that you will have that you don't even know you have so you need to reach out make sure you are letting people help you don't be afraid to ask for help and let people help you when they can yeah yeah and fail like right fail means that you're trying to do something and i think what i'm hearing from you is is being an athlete um planning this this cross-country bike race or bike ride right if you learn so much by just trying and doing, and you don't have to do it perfectly the first time, but you get better and you learn more about yourself and about different things. And so I think that's sage advice and really appreciate it. Uh, Monica, if you have a few more minutes, would love to take a quick little break and then bring you back for the back nine where we throw you through a little bit of a, a rapid fire questions here on the hot seat so we can get to know you a little bit better. You up for it? Okay, I am. All right, we'll be right back with the Honorable Monica F. Wiley right after this break. Do you want to stop feeling like you have little to no control over your life's journey and instead amplify your life's purpose? You all know me as Angela Taylor, host of the Unlocking the Club podcast, but I am also a business, career, life, and leadership coach helping my clients to live their best life. Every day, I help my clients discover what they truly want in life and then unlock the club on how they can live their best life. If you're like many of my clients, you have found yourself over the years prioritizing everyone else and everything else. Your job, your significant other, your family, your friends, your community, the list goes on and on. Well, I'm here to tell you the best thing you can do for others is to invest in yourself. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't need to succumb to the fear of failure. You don't have to be perfect. You don't need to feel like you're being selfish. You simply need to prioritize you. You may be thinking that coaching is for other people, but trust me when I say that we all could benefit from a good coaching relationship. Together, we'll build a plan to help you amplify your gifts, clarify your goals, and accelerate your journey toward the life you desire which may be finding financial wealth, spiritual health, relationship success, and or freedom and flexibility. You no longer have to feel like you aren't welcome into someone else's club. Let me empower you to leverage all of your extraordinary gifts and create your own club. Head on over to unlockingtheclub.com to book a free 20 minute introductory call to learn more about our Unlocking Your Journey coaching packages or use code UNLOCK 
to get a 15% discount on the six-month coaching package. Today is the day to invest in yourself. Let's unlock your journey. So, Monica, I imagine you're a voracious reader or consuming podcasts. What are some of the things that um, you consume in your free time to continue learning? Nothing. Netflix. Netflix, Netflix, Netflix. Netflix is the devil, and it has <laughs> taken me, and it has made me a tentman. No, I, um, I, I do watch way too much TV. During COVID, the Dallas, you were the original Dallas, 1970. Yes. I went through 14 seasons of Dallas, 30 episodes per season. Nice, JR, Pamela, Bobby, all of them, the U.S. All of it, all of it, all of it. Um, but I do read, I do read um, a lot as well. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of, that's my, my, my dirty secret. Well, after you cross the country on your bike, what's the next thing on your bucket list? The next thing on my bucket list, um, that is a great question. Uh, I think I'm, I'm going to focus on, on, on being successful cross country. Okay. Uh, if I do that, then I think I would like to take uh, a trip to either France or Spain uh, and, and do a bike trip there. Oh, that'd be amazing. So um, besides your home where you're watching Netflix, where's another place that you feel the safest? Oddly enough, uh, I'm on my bench. Mm. On my bench, I have a lot because I have so much control there. Interesting. I love that. Wouldn't have expected you to say that. Like, tell me more. Like, so what is that experience well, like of being? Because you can, because you can do, you, you can do the, I can do the right thing every single, every single day. You know, every case that I have, I can do what I think is the right thing for a family, and I think that that or a child, and that is, you know, incredibly. Um, it's just humbling. It's a humbling experience. So, and, you know, I have, I have control. So I, I, I think that's where I feel safest. Nice. Is there a situation, and if so, what is it where you walk into with trepidation? Public speaking. <laughs> really? Yes. I, I, you know, I, I do not like public speaking. And you do it every day. I do it every day. So you have to bring people into your courtroom and, and do your speeches from there. Yes. Well, here's what we should do. So on your bike trip, you should do some public speaking in every city that you all stop in along the way. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, focus on one thing at a time. Well, as you are traveling cross country and you hit, you know, an amazing market with fantastic restaurants and you have reservations for five, who are four other people that you would invite to dinner with you? Well, I've got... Barack Obama sitting right above me. So Barack Obama, um, I would invite, uh, that's a great question. Um, I think I would actually invite uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. Uh, I, 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 there's so many different facets um, to what she did for our country that I, I, I think to this, really to this day, no one really knows. Um, I would also invite someone new to the table, um, Polly Murray, who was a um, woman who was at Howard in Columbia and a lot of different places um, as a lawyer. Um, she is loud, uh, widely now known um, to have essentially authored some of our greatest um, constitutional privacy rights theories um, for the women's movement and for the civil rights movement. Um, and should have argued maybe the Brown versus Board of Education, uh, but was not given the opportunity to. Wow. And so um, so I would, I would invite her because I think she's just an absolutely fascinating um, legal giant that not a lot of people know about. And then I have four, I have one more person. One more, one more. Oh, one more person. Um, all right, Denzel Washington, only because, <laughs> you know, to this day, he's so good looking, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would invite Denzel Washington um, to, to the table as well. Nice. All right. So Holly, Denzel, um, Eleanor, and Barack. That's an amazing dinner. Let me know when and where you have reservations. I'm going to try to get the table next to you and eavesdrop on, on that conversation for sure. 
Uh, Monica, a couple more questions. Um, like what's one bit of advice that you received at some point on your journey um, that to this day still resonates with you? Uh, it was when I became a judge and it was, um, you are no longer part of the process, you're responsible for the process. And by that they meant, you know, the, the system, again, the system of justice as we know it um, is imperfect, but it's the best we have and certainly I think the best in the world. And so when that person comes to your courtroom, you are that face and you are responsible for the, for the process and their satisfaction and ultimately whether or not they have buy-in and comply with whatever orders you're going to give. So I think that, that that was probably the best piece of advice that I received and something that really to this day resonates with me. Nice. Cal or Stanford in the big game next year? What? <laughs> Come on. Um, I'm gonna go with Cal, even though, you know, we, we, we win 25% of the time. Uh, so hopefully, you know, it'll be at our, our house. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, win that game. Um, but you know, the Cal-Stanford rivalry, I never bought into it. Same here. When when we were when we were like you know ten percent body fat playing basketball, <laughs> I never bought into it. But as soon as I left, all of a sudden, it it became so much more important to me. Really? And so it, it did. I don't know why. So to this day, I've got a couple of you know Stanford, as you know, some Stanford friends, and I just can't help but every time Stanford loses in something, I'll send them a, a text or an email. You know, when the when the girls lost the the. The, the um, tournament in the tournament last year, I sent them. I'm, I'm a terrible person, um, but yeah, no, it, it 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 now has become very important. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. I wasn't going to say use those particular words about being a terrible person, but uh, yeah, being on the other side of those texts of uh, rubbing it in um, have been painful. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting. The further I get from it, the more I'm like Pac-12 over anything else. The guy it is. Uh, so, so cheering on some of the, the Cal Golden Bears. And of course, there's a Stanford Cardinal leading the Cal women's basketball team. So infusing a little bit of championship spirit there for you guys as well. Well, Monica, what Charm else? Is a great job. Charm is doing a great job. Yeah, good people, for sure. Is there anything else that you'd love our listeners to know about you, what you're working on, or what's important to you? Um, you know, I, I would I would stress two things. If, if you have an opportunity, um, you know, there's so many of our you know, particularly marginalized uh, young people that are in the system, either in the juvenile dependency system or the juvenile justice system. Um, if you have an opportunity to become a foster parent, um, please look into that. If you have an opportunity to become a, a CASA, which is a court-appointed special advocate, it's someone who develops a relationship with a, a young person and then uh, will report to the court. Um, I, that that Those are so some critical things I think that we as people in our community can do to ensure that people who, you know, are fortunately, unfortunately are in the dependency and juvenile justice systems, that, that they have an opportunity once they get out of those systems um, to do something productive in society. So if you have some time, if you're retired, if you have some time, um, you know, that, that you can devote to that, then I would, I would urge everyone to kind of look into, you know, even just, you know, Big Brother, Big Sister program, CASAs, um, anything that you can spend some time role modeling and mentoring a young person um, so that they have some consistency in their life, I would I would ask your listeners um, to, to think about doing. Mm, so powerful. Such a great thing to, to end our conversation with uh, and an illustration of why representation matters, because I guarantee you in the hundred and something year history of someone being in your position, we didn't have a lot of folks saying this and understanding how important it was for people to um, find a way to support those in the, the system, right? That don't have the opportunities or the access to mentors or someone who cares about them um, to get them off the street, to, to give them a, a warm meal, to care and to love them and to tell them that they are somebody. And so we're gonna make sure that we um, include some information about CASA in, in our show notes so that those of you that are listening who are able and willing um, take Monica up on her recommendation. But thank you for that. Monica, and thank you so much for joining us on Unlocking the Club. It has been an honor and a pleasure talking to you. Um, look forward to hearing all about your coast to coast 
bike ride and all the other great things um, that you continue to do. And so appreciative of the fact that you are on the bench in San Francisco. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. That was another episode of Unlocking the Club. Again, so thankful for our special guest today, the Honorable Monica F. Wiley. Thanks to all of you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Angela Taylor, and we look forward to seeing you and talking to you and sharing some amazing stories in our next episode of Unlocking the Club. Take care. Thanks for listening to Unlocking the Club. If this conversation resonated with you, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite streaming platform so that you can experience every episode. And follow us on social media where you'll hear about future guests, access special features, and connect with this amazing community. Head on over there and let us know how you are unlocking the club. Until next time, peace. Peace.